Coming up on today's show, we all know what happened last week in this part of the world, intense heat, a heat wave like never before. Can we attribute that to climate change? What's going on in Haiti? A tense situation getting tenser by the day following the assassination of that country's president earlier this week and conservatives raising the alarms about some questionable behavior from the finance department. You seeing what's going on in New York today? Holy cow. Uh, They're talking about, um, I mean, subways are flooded out, streets are flooded. Uh, It's that uh, tropical storm Elsa that has moved into the region. But they're saying the rainfall that hit New York City last night is a top 10 rain event in the city of New York. And it is way, way early uh, in the summer for this kind of severe weather. Hurricane season usually starts much, much later than it does. The latest example of extreme weather. Uh, We've lived it here in our part of the world. As you know, last week, we saw temperature records fall across Western Canada. We know what happened in Lytton, Alberta. They set the national record um, for hottest temperature ever recorded in Canada for three consecutive days, and then essentially the town caught fire. Um, and much of it burned down. But they were almost 50 degrees in Lytton, B.C. last week. So um, we're seeing some extreme weather. And, of course, um, there's the discussion around climate change. Is this an example of climate change? We've always been told you can't look at one specific event and call it climate change. But maybe in this instance, there's enough indicators to say, you know what? You can. Um, There is a report out now that was put together by a group of scientists from around the world Um, examining this heat wave that hit, well, Western Canada, parts of the Western United States last week, examining all of the different factors that went into it, and um, what does it mean? Is it an example that we can point to of climate change and something we can expect to see more of in the future? So let's get some details on it now. Dr. Farron Anslow is joining us now. He's the, uh, this doctor is the lead of climate analysis and monitoring at the Pacific Climate Impacts Consortium. Uh, Doctor, thank you for joining us this morning. Appreciate it. Good morning, Shay. How are you? Very well. Thank you very much. Okay, so this report. First of all, let's talk about how it was put together. Uh, International scientists, people from all around the world looked at the data? Yeah, that's right. Um, There's a group um, that basically now specializes in doing this kind of event attribution, um, trying to get the science out as soon as as possible after the event hit, uh, just to to raise awareness and get the science ball rolling uh, quickly. But yeah, big group of 27 of us. So when you take a look at um, all the different factors, I mean, obviously the temperatures are what stand out to laymen like myself, you know, with almost 50 degrees in Lytton, BC. But what other kind of data do you analyze in putting together a report like this? Um, yeah, there's, we, we look at weather records um, all over Western Canada um, and the Western United States as well. They, they suffered quite a lot, um, quite extremely. And then we also look at um, climate model data, uh, basically use that data to compare uh, what we call a, a, you know, a hypothetical um, case where we didn't have any greenhouse gas emissions versus the present case where we do um, and seeing what the difference in the climate is between those two things. So when we take a look at what went into what happened last week, um, what kind of factors led to that intense heat, record-breaking heat? Um, there was the the heat dome that I think a lot of people heard about. Um, it was this really strong ridge of high pressure. Um, you know, it extended all the way from Oregon northward, um, even actually reaching into California and up into Yukon and Northwest Territories. And that was that was the big player. It, it kind of sat over our region. It it capped 
um, basically kept the hot air in. Uh, you have a feature under those high-pressure systems where the air is descending from high elevation, and that uh, descending air gets hotter as it moves closer to the Earth's surface. Um, and then it just keeps any other weather systems from intruding um, and allows those temperatures to warm. And then additionally, it happened right during the longest days of the year, yeah. and we think that might be a big factor. You know, we just have these, especially there in Edmonton, you have these really long days, um, lots of sunshine coming in. Yeah, and it, and it just didn't cool off. Um, now, could this not just be a coincidence? Why are we saying this is an example of climate change? I mean, I understand it's extreme and it's unprecedented, but um, we've always been told you don't look at one specific instance and attribute that to climate change, right? It has to be a long-term projection when you look at climate change. Why in this case are we tying this to climate change? Yeah, that's a, that's a really great question. Um, so this this field is, is pretty new and developing, Um you know, as soon as a couple weeks, a um, couple weeks ago, just before the event happened, um, I gave an interview and and I was trying to answer the question of if it's climate change, and I was I basically said, you know, we're not going to know until we do do a lot of analysis, and then I got wrapped up in this team that that specializes in that kind of analysis. Um, but it is it's a budding area of research, um, and like any science, um, there's going to be a bit of uncertainty here. Uh, all that said. Um, I'm quite convinced that this is an extreme, very extreme event. Um, just looking at the temperature records that we have uh, going back into the 1800s in some cases, um, there's just this huge step change in the the annual maximum temperatures uh, that we see. It's it's less so in Alberta. Um, I think by the time, I mean, even though people in Alberta, I'm sure they weren't comfortable during the event, mm-hmm. um, but as, as the heat dome kind of migrated over there, it was starting to weaken a little bit, and so the temperatures weren't as extreme. Uh, but here in, in B.C. and uh, Washington and Oregon, um, the temperatures were just, just way off the chart. Um, so, yeah, so it's, you know, there's going to be some uncertainty. These numbers will probably change a little bit, um, but I think it's very unlikely that um, we'll come to a different conclusion here with this. And, you know, and when we talk about climate change, part of it is more extreme weather events, right? Like the heat dome, like the top 10 all-time rainfall in New York that's happening right now. I mean, it's not its not necessarily every day is going to be hotter. It, it, it can also mean more extreme weather examples happening more often, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, you know, simultaneously with this event, um, there's, you know, heat wave in Siberia. Um, California has been suffering. They're about to get another massive heat wave there um so we and all these things are things that we expect with climate change they're kind of the the you know the events that form the fingerprint of climate change and when we start to see those events that uh, we also see in the models that gives us better confidence that climate change is is in effect right now and heat waves are are one of the most certain um, outcomes of climate change. Um, we already know the temperature is getting warmer, um, and that comes along with extreme temperatures, um, which in this case, you know, the the record-breaking temperatures actually increased faster than the the rate of temperature change for the whole globe. So even though we're only, <clears throat> excuse me, 1.2 degrees warmer than the kind of pre-industrial or early industrial era, um, you know, we're seeing extreme heat that's two degrees higher. So we're kind of getting this 
additive effect um, in the extreme. Um, like I'm on board with the climate change, and the extreme weather events are enough to show me that that something is changing. And I'm not, but I'm wondering, like when we talk about these records that were set in Alberta and in BC and things like that, most of them we're talking about were breaking records that were set in 19. I think it was 1914 for the hottest temperature ever in Edmonton. And we came close to breaking it, but we didn't quite get there. So when we're talking about that, when we go back over 100 years, what was happening then? Like if if what we're seeing right now is so extreme and that's caused by climate change, what was happening back when the, the records were originally set that, that wasn't climate change? I mean, it, do you understand what I'm trying to say? Absolutely, yeah. Um, yeah, so, you know, these these events in the in the climate system, there's, there's a random element to it. Um, so, you know, you, you go a large number of years without getting any kind of hot weather. Yeah. Um, you know, it really goes up and down. And, you know, one of the things that we found in the paper is that kind of in the present climate, um, this is a one in a thousand year event. Um, and what that means is, you know, there's this kind of, it's very unlikely, but it is possible. And we, we also found that with climate change, this is much more likely of an event to have happened. Uh, but what that means is it doesn't mean that it was impossible in the past. Mm -hmm. And so it was probably happening in, in the, you know, the 19 teens when these earlier records were set, um, probably quite similar. Um, so the weather patterns, and we found that in the paper that were associated with this, didn't really look any different, um, you know, getting a big high-pressure system that sits over the region um, is not not unusual at all. Um, just deciding that kind of amp amplifying effect, but, you know, in the past, there always is this, this chance of getting these really extreme temperatures. Um, the, other, the other side of that coin is with, with uh, cold temperatures in the wintertime, you know, as as you all know, on the prairies, you occasionally still set record low temperatures. Yeah. With climate change, you may think, well, how can that happen? We're warming. Like, how are we breaking below? But, um, you know, there's 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 always this kind of random chance in in your your weather, basically. And what climate change does, it just kind of stacks the deck in favor of warmer temperatures. It doesn't eliminate the possibility of, of colder temperatures until you reach a certain, you know, a certain threshold. Eventually, you know, the Arctic is going to warm quite a bit to make it, make it very hard to get those really cold temperatures. But, um, yeah. Go, go ahead. Uh, well, I mean, like, and, and like I say, and I'm just playing devil's, devil's advocate here, it can be a random event. As you said, we, we can see record cold and we can see record heat. I'm just wondering if you can help me um, why this one, what's changed in terms of, and, and I know I asked you this question before, maybe I just missed it, uh, but why is this one, okay, this is a result of climate change, when other extreme events, like when it hits minus 40 next winter, we're going to say, well, that's not, a, that's, not an, you know, that's not global warming. That's, you know what I mean? That's just one day. Why is this, what's the difference here? Yeah. Um, I mean, one, of, one of the big things here is the, the scale of the event. Um, you know, it, it was set record over a, a very large area. So mm -hmm. that, that's one thing. Um, and the other thing is... Um, you know, there. I guess I guess we can't get away from the fact that there's, you know, there there is variability in the climate system. Um, but what we see is the vast majority of stations are continually setting new high records, and that 
you know, aligns perfectly with what we expect uh, with the changing climate. Um, and, you know, the ironic thing is with, with the cold temperatures, um, you know, one example uh, that we uh, haven't yet or may not be able to link to climate change, um, but kind of is consistent with climate change is the, the extreme cold that Texas saw last, um, I guess it was, was it earlier this year? Mm. Um, you know, they had that, that cold event, uh, January, February, um, that caused a lot of disruption. Um, and one of the effects of climate change is, seems to be this um, kind of wavier, slower jet stream. And that allows these cold temperatures to penetrate further south. So a place like Texas, where the all-time lows, you know, aren't going to be minus, you know, minus 40 or equivalent to what the prairies have. Yeah. Um, you get you get an intrusion of cold cold air there, and it's it's going to set records. Um, so those those things are consistent with climate change, even even though if they don't, you know, they don't make intuitive sense. Doc, I appreciate your time this morning. Thank you so much for the insight. All right, thanks a lot, Shay. Have a good day. You too. Thank you. That is Dr. Farron Anslow, the lead of climate analysis and monitoring at the Pacific Climate Impacts Consortium. going to take a look at a situation that's developing in Haiti. Uh, I'm sure you've heard it. It's been in the news this week, and they're dealing with yet another crisis. Earlier this week, that country's president was assassinated by gunmen. Apparently, uh, some reports say they were posing as DEA agents, and now we know that um, at least two American citizens are among those arrested for carrying out the assassination. We found out this morning that one of those Americans actually worked in security detail at the Canadian embassy in Port-au-Prince, Haiti. So there's lots of new developments to this story almost every day. So let's get some insight on exactly what's going on and what it means. Um, Dr. Robert Fatten is a Haitian politics expert at the University of Virginia, and he joins us now. Doctor, uh, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate your time today. Well, thank you so much for having me. The latest on the situation in Haiti. Just just tell us, the assassination took place earlier this week. What do we know? What we know now is that there were 28 uh, assassins, if you wish. Mm-hmm. Uh, 26 were Colombians and two were Haitian Americans. The Haitian police has arrested seven of them, including the two Haitian Americans. And as you mentioned, the fellow by the name of James Soulage at one point had a very short stint as a security person in the Canadian embassy in Haiti. Uh, now... What we do know, too, which is a really new twist in the whole saga, is that uh, Solage, who has been interrogated, has apparently told the judge that the commando was not supposed to kill, to have killed the president, Jovenel Moïse, but instead was supposed to have, and this is a weird term, arrested him. I assume Hmm. that what he meant is that the commando was supposed to have seized him and what would have happened afterwards, uh, no one knows. But if that is the case, uh, that is a really new twist. And we don't know whether Mr. Soulage is actually lying to the police, but that is is the latest coming from Haiti. What about motivation what just tell us i mean uh, for those of us that aren't familiar with politics in haiti what 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 are we hearing as as the motivation with colombians involved um i've heard some people say maybe it was cartel action it may be but that is sheer speculation yep. and if that new twist is correct 
that they wanted simply to seize him, then we have a completely different story. Now, Haiti has had a long history of uh, political instability. We've had many uh, really nasty dictators, but we haven't had an assassination of a president for more than a century. The last uh, president killed was in 1915, and it was in a very different era and environment. There was a revolt among the Haitians. They penetrated the uh, residence where the president was, and they killed him. This is very different. This is a commander of foreigners who came to Haiti and entered his residence and killed the president. Now, whether they intended to do that Mm -hmm. is a significant question, because if it was simply to seize him, then we might uh, imagine scenarios whereby uh, some powerful groups in Haiti might have had an interest, although that is also rather fanciful. But uh, we need to determine what caused that uh, attack and ultimately who is responsible. We may have some concrete news, hopefully, when the wife of the president uh, will be able to talk. But so far, we only have the uh, commentary of those two Haitian-Americans saying that they didn't intend to kill him. With two Americans involved, and as you said, uh, a couple dozen Colombian nationals involved, can we make any links to other states being involved, or were these just hired mercenaries? I mean, is there any ties to the U.S. or to Colombia acting on behalf of the governments there? I really doubt it, uh, because ultimately the operation has been very amateurish at one level. If you have a commando of elite uh, people, you would assume that they would have an, an exit that yeah. would have been much better than the one we've had. What we do know, too, is that there was very lax uh, security around the president. I mean, no one else was killed in the attack apart from the president. You would have assumed that they, if they had a, a security detail there defending the president, that there would have been some wounded or some killed. Not, not, nothing of this sort happened. It looks like they just went in uh, without any opposition. So that may indicate that there was some complicity uh, among the top uh, mm. you know, security people in Haiti. And actually, uh, judges in Haiti have uh, planned to interrogate the senior people of uh, the security detail of President Jovenel Moïse. Now, the aftermath, Haiti um, verging on failed state status before, um, if not there already. Um, who's taking over? I mean, we have an interim president, but he was only, or a prime minister, he was only an interim prime minister. He was supposed to be replaced quite soon anyway. So what is the situation on the ground in Haiti now following the assassination politically? Well, that's another puzzle because the current prime minister, uh, Mr. Joseph, uh, was supposed actually to be the foreign minister of Haiti this week. Right. And the prime minister was supposed to be the one designated by Jovenel Moïse before his assassination, and that was Ariel Henry. Now, uh, Mr. Joseph has said that he's in charge and that he will stay in the position till we have election. And uh, at the same time, Mr. Ariel Henry has been declaring in the airwaves and in uh, uh, interviews with the Haitian press that he is the prime minister and he he wants to finish uh, the formation of his own government. So we have a problem here. 
and that pro problem is only one among many because you're talking about two individuals from the same party who are joking for the position of prime minister. Then you have to deal with the opposition, which has refused uh, to accept the legitimacy of the current government. And you have members of civil society who have called for an interim government, a government of national uh, uh, unity and transition, and they do not want the election this year. They want to have a transition whereby there would be an environment within which uh, proper elections could be uh, conducted. Now, I know until quite recently, uh, the UN had peacekeepers in Haiti. Are we at a situation where the international community might be stepping in again here to try and maintain order and stability until we get to that point where uh, the Haitian political situation has sorted itself out? Well, I'm afraid that that may, that may be one of the consequences of the current situation. Uh, I, I would hope that uh, uh, the solution would be local. In other words, mm -hmm. that Haitian politicians and Haitian members of civil society would be able uh, to uh, create a government that would set up uh, a national agenda and that they would not be dependent on external intervention. But clearly, if we have a descent into further chaos, uh, the possibility of another UN mission very much like the Minusta mission that we had before, that might happen again. Interesting. Thank you so much for your insight. You cleared a number of things up for me. Thank you so much, Doctor. I appreciate it. Okay, you're welcome. Thank you. That is Dr. Robert Fatten, who is a Haitian politics expert at the University of Virginia. Uh, a very, very interesting story, what's going down there. And those ties to the two American citizens that were involved in this assassination and the fact that one of them worked security um, at the Canadian embassy in Port-au-Prince, uh, just for, and as, as he said, you know, there's just twists and there's turns and there's developments to this story almost every day. And the biggest problem is you've got uh, already perhaps the poorest nation in the Western Hemisphere that's been teetering on the brink for years. Um, what's the future? What's the situation? So a couple of weeks back, uh, June 29th, late last month, the Parliament of Canada passed a law that was meant to give some tax relief to small businesses in Canada. Basically, it changes the way they're taxed when they hand it down to another family member. Um, but in a move that the opposition and legal experts are both saying is unprecedented and, and does not follow the way that our system is meant to work, um, the finance department has said, yeah, no, we're not bringing that into law just yet. You can wait until January. It, it, it hasn't happened before, um, and we need to find out why and what can be done about it. So uh, let's get some details on this situation. We're joined now by Larry McGuire, who is a Conservative MP from Manitoba. Uh, Larry, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Appreciate your time. Yep, my pleasure. So first of all, let's just get um, the understanding on what this bill does. Uh, the bill that was brought forward, actually, it's law now. It, it, it's received uh, royal assent. Um, just what is it meant to do, and how does it work? It received royal assent on June the 29th. It passed both the House and the Senate. Nineteen Liberals even voted for it in the House. This bill is very simple. It levels the playing field for a family who wants to sell their small business corporation shares to their adult children or grandchildren and levels the playing field. By, by that I mean right now it's a penalty to sell to your own children. And that is because if you sell to a complete stranger, 
you get the use of the capital gains exemption, which is at a very much uh, lower tax rate, then if you sell it to your own children because you have to declare the, uh, the, the sale as a dividend, the income from the sale as a dividend, which is at a much higher tax rate. And that has been a penalty that's been in place for a couple of decades, and uh, we've always felt that it was unfair to family small businesses, which is the backbone of, uh, you know, small businesses are the backbone of employment of the private sector across the whole country. Now, uh, important context here. It's passage through the House. Who was it supported by and who was it opposed by? It was supported by all of the opposition members and 19 Liberals in the House uh, at third reading. Then it went off to the Senate, where they brought an amendment in to try and kill the bill, but the Senate passed it 45 to 31, and then it received royal assent uh, uh, thereafter. Okay, now... And once it receives royal assent, this is the most important part here, once it receives royal assent, it is law. That's That's the way our system is designed to work. Unless there is a specific date mentioned in the bill itself, uh, we assume it becomes law of the land upon receiving royal assent, right? That's the way it's always worked. That is what the law states. Okay, so um, tell us what happened to this bill. It's not becoming law of the land as of June 29th. They're talking about January 1st? It is the law as of June the 29th, but the government doesn't want to accept it. So they put out a press release the very next day on June the 30th saying that they would implement it on January the 1st, 2022, uh, which means nothing. It's a piece of paper with a press release announcement on it, but it's not backed by law. And so therefore, uh, uh, basically what they're trying to do is scare small businesses into not proceeding with this because they will come back and implement, if they get a majority government, Uh, some kind of a reversal of the whole process. Well, that- now, they tried to bring an amendment forward. The amendment that they tried to bring forward in the House was, first of all, to not have a, not be able to read, have a third reading of the bill in the Senate. And the other one was to uh, extract all small businesses from it except farmers and fishers, uh, which is only like 3% of all the small businesses in Canada. So I'm flabbergasted that the government hates small businesses enough that they would reverse this. Um, now, as you said, the, the important thing to remember here is if they push this back to January 1st, uh, we're all anticipating a fall election. If they win fall election, there's a very good chance that this bill could be altered, killed altogether, and would never come into effect on January 1st if they have a majority government, right? That's the indication, absolutely. Now, in terms of the legality around this, when we talk about you know a, a bill typically becoming law of the land when receiving lo- royal assent, is, is that the law? I mean, are they in violation of the law here, or is this something that's just a break from precedent? Is it a legality issue, or is it just this is the way we've always done it? The Office of the Law, Kirk, just informed me that this is the law, and they are breaking the law and in contempt of Parliament. So what's the recourse here? What what can the opposition parties do to, uh, I mean, you got the law on your side. Well, uh, I mean, <laughs> I guess we vote them out. That's the big thing. But, uh, I mean, the big, you know, there's not many alternatives here. Uh, they're just trying to scare people into not proceeding with these sales. You can't stop small businesses selling from one generation to the next. There'll be many of them that take place over the next five months, even if we did wait till January. But, um, one of the recourses is we could, of course, call an emergency meeting of the Finance Committee of the House of Commons. Uh, and uh, uh, But the Finance Department put out the release, but they would not reply to the Globe and Mail. They will not apply to reply to myself. And they're not even apply, replying to the uh, uh, House of Commons Finance Committee chair. So 
they know they don't have a leg to stand on, but this is purely a attack from the government to uh, take a shot across the bow, I guess, if you will, uh, basically letting people know that they are going to reverse this if they form a government. Okay, so we're talking about it, um, and and I know we received a number of um, emails from different Conservative MPs yesterday saying, hey, you know, you want to have somebody come on and talk about this, and you're sounding the alarm. I'm just wondering, are you optimistic this can be changed? Can I mean, if, if you've got the law, I mean, is there something you can do prior to January 1st, or are we just going to have to wait this out and, as you say, see what happens in the next election? Well, once it's determined who is the government after the next election, that government can can legally pass a bill. That has happened before. Yeah. I mean, Mr. Trudeau has passed bills to uh, soften things like, uh, you know, uh, criminal offenses, the, the penalties for criminal offenses and those sorts of things. But this is a tax, and you can make those retroactive. But if they go back and make this retroactive, uh, you know, it, it would be and try to collect taxes from people who do sell their home. That, that is a precedent and certainly uh, from the tax side, uh, uh, not acceptable. The other side of this is the the tax department sends out interpretations of tax changes on a regular basis to our chartered accountants and businesses across Canada. We've got support for this bill from Newfoundland to Vancouver Island, and we've received hundreds of kudos in regards to doing it. And all of the opposition parties have been in favor of this. It, it was even brought forward by a new Democrat back in 2017, and we were all in favor of it then. But of course, uh, with the new election, it uh, you know it was defeated by the Liberals at that time because they had a majority. Right. But uh, so you know the option option here is uh, for us right now is to uh, uh, see if they will. Uh, we we've asked for a reply. We're not getting it, um, and therefore we may have to take other action. As I said, uh, perhaps an emergency meeting. Yeah, absolutely. And we will follow it closely, Larry. Thanks so much for the insight this morning. I appreciate it. Well, I, I think the big thing here too, Shay, is that. Canadian Federation of Independent Business supports this, Independent Brokers Association of Canada, um, Canadian Federation of Agriculture, all commodity organizations in Canada have spoken out to the, to us. Uh, there may be the odd one that hasn't replied yet, but uh, Montreal Board of Trade, uh, you know, Canadian Life Underwriters Association. This affects all bakeries, dress shops, corner stores uh, in every one of our communities, and there isn't a senator or a member of parliament that doesn't have hundreds of these types of businesses in their constituencies and they're they're the liberals are just uh throwing a, a shot across the bow to all of them that says uh we would allow farmers and fishers only three percent of the people to uh to go ahead with this but we're not going to allow the other 97 percent of you because uh and they haven't even given us a good reason right yeah uh, so uh you know other than um perhaps some loss of income to the national revenue, which is uh, probably amounts to the office supplies, paper, and ink that the government has yeah, spent on an thing. annual it's, basis. It's not going to be a truckload of money it, when you're talking about the national budget. So, Well, yeah. they also forget that that money stays in the hands of the people in their local communities, and it gets spent there, and it gets invested again. And, uh, uh, you know, they're concerned about uh, these actions of, well, uh, the, uh, you know, the, the, the parents might still be involved in the business. Uh, I don't know many small businesses who, but you know, who don't have parents involved in the business after the mm-hmm. sale. Yeah. But in the case of many of these businesses, once the ownership changes and right. goes to the next generation, they are responsible for the fiscal management of that company. 
so they can, if they want to hire their parents back or if the parents want to work for free, as uh, you know, I always say I worked on my farm uh, for free for a lot of years before my father started paying me and I, I invested in it and eventually bought it. Uh, and then after I bought it from him, he didn't want to go away either, so he was still involved in it. So, you know, I mean, it's it's a fictitious argument that the Liberals have brought forward in this whole process. And uh, they're not, uh, the Finance Department hasn't really heeded the fact that, that this is just level of playing field. It doesn't give anybody an advantage. It just puts them on a level playing field. Okay, Larry, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you. You have a good day. That's Larry McGuire, who is a Conservative MP. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.